deliberately kind of confabulate imaging text. Because in every uh, domain, image and text are not pure. We receive images and text together in image texts, or if they're kept separate in implicit image texts, where the reader viewer is expected to supply the missing text or image or something extra. Texts point to objects and images and lives. Images point to texts and objects and lives. A lot of pointing. And then there's the diagram, uh, which can be an aesthetic composition or an instruction manual, a neoplatonic spiritual object or a working model, pure mathematics or a data visualization, or a schematic entertainment, or something else. And that raises a lot of questions. Where does the diagram stand in the long durée of image text politics? Is it a synthesis, or a reduction, or a rupture? Does it have a history of its own, separate from text and image? And if so, are there discrete histories of diagram? Uh, Marin and, and Bender titled their uh, not now so recent book on the plates of the Encyclopédie, uh, culture of, the culture of diagram as if the encyclopedists uh, invented our culture of diagram, which is clearly not the case, as this panel will evidence. There were lots of diagrams before and after and during the Enlightenment with varied characteristics, uses, meaning styles, many of which were transmitted beyond their original circumstances of production and reception and carried forward to us in some form, or sometimes not. More questions. What is a diagram? What are the genres? What are diagrams good for or said to be good for? And who gets to see them uh, and use them? What counts for a competent diagram? And what counts for a spiritually pure or aesthetically satisfying one? And that consideration leads to a favorite topic of mine, the visual vocabulary and grammar of the diagram its iconographic toolbox, or maybe it's an iconic or anti-iconic toolbox. Again, here we mostly see mixtures of elements. Very few diagrams are pure geometry. Most contain an inheritance of pictorial, ideogrammatic, numeric, or alphabetic, or typographical elements, call-out symbols, words, and signs, as well as invented elements made with pen and pencil and burin and type and are accompanied by captions and other diagrams and deployed on pages and books and folding or hanging charts with text and signage, all of which refer back to past and contemporary cultural productions, experiences, events, social structures, technologies. There's a kind of sense of, uh, that very often a diagram is a kind of corresponds to some larger order of things. Anyway, and, and this all happens in ways that are often perfectly obvious or cunningly hidden or a little bit of both. So this is a panel on the history, dialectics, technology, cultures, and meaning of illustration and diagram and their relation to text and to embodied life and human artifice and materiality. And it's in the interstices between all of these things where the panelists today uh, will locate their obscure objects of study and desire, which are objects which scale things up or down shrink them down to homunculus size or magnify details, collect and compress signs and meanings, or cloak or dissolve them, which had the history of circulation and readership and collectorship and archival deposit, and plenty of dialogue with other cultural productions, and which come to us now as items in libraries and special collections, digitized on the web, and projected on screens. 
in conferences like this one. So let us begin with our first uh, uh, grade about 100,000 questions. <laughs> uh, but let us begin with our first speaker of the day. Can you step to the podium? Sure. Oh. Get rid of this annoying 20th century diagram. RBS celebration. So, um, am I loud enough here? Are you good? Mm hmm. Were you a little off the screen? Oh dear. Maybe I'm gonna try and just move this without destroying. I don't know that it's. Hmm. I don't think it's no, that it's, actually. It's, I think it's, it's, it's cut this, off in the slide. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. cut off in the slide. Anyway, that first word is crossing. <laughs> okay. In his discourse on sacred and profane imagery, published in 1582. Cardinal Gabriele Paleotti attempted to flesh out the very vague guidelines on religious imagery issued at the Council of Trent. In response to Protestant critiques of relics, extra-biblical apocryphal images, lascivious portrayals of the Virgin, and other visual sins, Paleotti argued that, quote, just as orators have it in their office to delight, teach, and move, so do painters of sacred images who are like mute theologians, end quote. Today, we will look at images in religious publications that fulfilled Paleotti's prescription of instructing through careful visual and textual exposition of the Bible and delighting through expert handling of the etching needle, burin, and chisel. As for the question of movement, we will primarily consider instead the movement of the images themselves as they cross boundaries of geography, genre, medium, and religious confession. Our primary case study is the Figurae et Imagines Bibliorum, published by Johannes Bussemacher in Cologne, circa 1588, with etchings by Simon Novolanus. This picture Bible merits our attention for several reasons. First of all, it has never been properly described in the scholarly literature, partially because it falls within the interstices of two disciplines. As an entirely intaglio publication, with no letterpress at all, it is beyond the purview of book historians. Art historians have paid it only glancing attention. The latest Holstein volume for the artist, Simon Novolanus, lists it as untraced. I would like to suggest that in addition to the figurai's obvious artistic merits and its trailblazing status <coughs> as perhaps the earliest etched German picture Bible, the Figurae is fascinating because of the way it navigates between contentious confessional divisions in Cologne and within Germany in general. By contextualizing this publication within the frameworks of book history, art history, and regional history, this talk will demonstrate the skillful ways that artists, publishers, and readers negotiate across confessional lines. We will also consider why pictures were particularly nimble in this regard. Let's begin by familiarizing ourselves with this publication. It is an oblong quarto. After the title page, there are 32 numbered plates with illustrations from the book of Genesis. Each plate has a Latin caption that summarizes the illustration <coughs> along with a biblical citation. 
These captions are as straightforward as possible. There is no attempt at biblical exegesis and only slight overtones of moral didacticism. Beginning with creation and the fall of man, we move through the lives of Noah and Abraham. The illustrations are often continuous narratives with several scenes packed into the same landscape. For example, in this episode, after a feast for Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah demands that her husband cast out Hagar, her servant, and her son Ishmael. Upon their departure, Hagar despairs over the lack of water in the wilderness and weeps. An angel calls to her, promising her that God will make her son into a great nation and shows her a well visible in the very far background. The caption merely notes, Isaac was born and weaned, Ishmael and his mother were driven into the desert to live. If we compare this to a predecessor in the picture Bible genre, Tobias Stimmer's Bilderbibel, the motto above reads, Law yields to grace. This clearly Protestant inflection, and indeed any inflection at all, is entirely absent from Novolanus's captions. Stimmer's image prompts us to consider the predecessors to the figurae. The idea of illustrating a printed Bible actually originated in Cologne with Kentel's Low German Cologne Bible of 1478, which itself was based on a manuscript Bible. Um, illustrated Bibles, however, are a different genre than picture Bibles, where the images tell a story and may not even include any actual biblical text at all. Like the individual illustrations in the figurae, picture Bibles on the whole epitomize and condense. Most are radical abridgments of the entire Bible, though the term is also applied to publications that illustrate single books of the Bible as well. So picture Bibles first appear in Germany and France. The earliest example in Germany, um, earliest examples include Luther's Beckbuchlein, um, the Biblicae Historiae with illustrations by Hans Sebald Behem, Joost Amann's Neue Biblische Figuren, and Tobias Dimmer's Bilderbibel. Um, both Hans Holbein's Iconis and the highly influential woodcuts by Bernard Salomon for Paradigm's Quadra Historique de la Bible were published in Lyon. All of these woodcut picture Bibles are smaller than the figurae. Some, like Luther's prayer book, suggest a very close tie between devotion and illustration, while Boxberger's introductions suggest that Amman's images will serve as models to painters, goldsmiths, sculptors, and other artists. Moving forward chronologically, we can turn to the great printing center of Antwerp, where we move from woodblock images to engraved and etched ones. Two predecessors here get us much closer in terms of technique and layout to the figurae. An incredibly ambitious publication, which first appeared in 1585 um, and then was subsequently reissued by various publishers, is the Thesaurus Sacrarum Historiarum. The 346 engraved plates encompass creation through revelation and the church fathers. The publisher, Gerard de Yoda, gathered pre-existing biblical print series and commissioned new ones to fill in the gaps. Thirteen different draftsmen were involved. Prime among them was Martin de Vos, and the engravers came from the greatest engraving dynasties of the period, the Sadlers, Verixes, and Collards. That such a high percentage of this publication came from pre-existing series demonstrates the strong market for Old Testament print series. And it shows the way in which a publication like our figurae falls between two genres, that of the picture Bible, a book, and that of the print series, something that isn't strictly speaking a book, but which involves chronological narrative and text. 
The oblong format with an image dominating the leaf and a Latin caption below is very similar to our figurae. John, does this look familiar to you? This is from the Yes. I properly cited my source. It's <laughs> beautiful, hand colored from the Morgan. <laughs> Courtesy of John Bidwell, thank you. The obvious high cost of this publication points to the desire among <coughs> upper-class patrons to own picture Bibles and suites of illustrations that illustrate the biblical narrative. One other publication that seems closely related to our Figurae et Imagines Bibliorum is the Imagines et Figurae Bibliorum, uh, which comes out of the Plantum Circle in Antwerp. Peter van der Borst supplied the etchings. Though this publication is smaller in scale than our figurae, you can see from the very similar title, the use of etching to illustrate biblical events, the compression of multiple episodes in a single landscape, and the fact that Novolanus' work has often been confused for van der Borst's, that there is a connection between Antwerp printing and Cologne printing in this period. Etched picture Bibles are a developing genre, and this formal link to Antwerp provides a clue about the background of the figurized artist. Very little is known about the artist, uh, Simon Novolanus or Neuvelt. He's active in Cologne circa 1580 to 1590, but several factors suggest he may have come from the Netherlands. Um, if we look here and you see the Van der Borst above and another print series um, called the Patriarch series by uh, Novolanus below, you can see why they may have been confused for each other. Um, Secondly, it was precisely during Novolanus' active period in Cologne that many Netherlanders artists settled in that city after fleeing political and religious upheaval at home. Among them were Adrian de Vert, Franz Hogenberg, Abraham de Bruyne, Johann Sadler, and Crispin Passa. Furthermore, Novolanus was involved in Hogenberg's great atlas project, Civitates Orbus Terrarium. This may suggest a Netherlandish Protestant identity However, it's also possible that Novolanus was a native German engraver. Artists, of course, worked for publishers of different religious confessions. And indeed, the figurae was published by Johannes Bussemacher, whose output was overwhelmingly in support of the Catholic Church. Bussemacher's pro-Catholic output was certainly shaped by the religious climate of Cologne. Between 1583 and 1588, the Cologne War became a proxy for the Protestants, France, England, the Dutch, and the Palatinate to fight against the Catholic Bavarians, Spanish, and Italians. The situation for publishers and printmakers in Cologne was a delicate one. Many continued to print Protestant literature, but in 1588, tradespeople, including those who sold paper, paintings, and sculptures, had to swear a Catholic oath of loyalty. In general, Cologne printing supported the Catholic Reformation, as did Bussemacher. The vast majority of his religious images are Catholic devotional ones, such as his broadsheet on Jesuit martyrs. This officially Catholic climate of Cologne was tempered by Netherlandish exiles and printers who saw a market for transconfessional and Protestant literature, along with secular subjects. The Figurae Imagines Bibliorum aims beyond the Catholic audience and appeals to a wider market. The Latin captions pitch the publication to a well-educated readership, though of course the fact the book is completely illustrated broadens its appeal beyond a Latinate audience. This is meant for readers who want to learn, some biblical history, some Latin, and who are seeking high-quality, sophisticated illustrations. The title page sets a tone for a trans-confessional audience. 
This title page is designed around entirely orthodox, undisputed Christian teaching, which in itself conveys an ironic message. The first fundamental principle the image establishes is God as creator. Through the building's arched openings, the viewer looks out onto creation, with Adam and Eve, the animals and the sun on the left, the birds, fish, and moon on the right. An enthroned Moses, identifiable by his horns, rod, and ten commandments, sits with the first five books of the Bible, authored by him and considered to be the law, arrayed at his feet. He's flanked by two other rather generic-looking prophets who hold the books they authored. A tablet on the left wall bears Christ's answer to the query, what is the greatest commandment? His reply in Latin, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. On the right wall, a second tablet bears Christ Jesus' admonition, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Matthew 7, 12. Engraved in the stone above Moses' head is Jesus' teaching that unites both of the tablets. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets, which are represented by those three figures below. Christ's presence is further implied in the final text panel below the throne, which bears the prophetic verse, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. To them that dwelt in the region of the shadow of death, light has risen. Thus, the teachings of Moses and the prophets, represented in figural form and in the bottom text panel, are summed up in the words of Christ, as represented in the upper three textual elements. In an era of deep confessional strife, this call to simply love God and your neighbor is a powerful conciliatory statement in itself. <clears throat> Similarly, throughout the text, confessionally driven New Testament typologies are avoided. Here, for example, the caption simply notes that Abraham accepts bread, wine, and blessing from Melchizedek. It does not imply that this is mere bread and wine, as some Protestants would insist, nor that it is a prefiguration of the sacrificial mass, as Catholics would. Another place we can look for signs of a confessional reading is the moment when Abraham believes that God will give him descendants as numerous as the stars. That crucial act of belief is credited to him as righteousness. The figurae includes this seldom depicted event, but the text avoids any interpretation that inclines towards Luther or Calvin's reading of that episode as evidence of salvation by faith alone, rather than by works. The text only focuses on Abraham's vision of Israel's slavery and liberation. The etching opens up a possibility of a confessional reading, which in this case the text rejects. As we will see, however, not all readers read these images the way the text directed them to. Readers and viewers came to this publication with different agendas in mind. Some readers undoubtedly were looking for instruction. This book essentially is a pictorial history of the world, from creation to the origins of the Israelites. This print series educates readers in sacred history, but also trains artists. I'll briefly share two pieces of evidence for this. Immediately on the reverse of one plate in the Rijksmuseum's version, we can observe one fledgling draftsman copy the previous page. On a much larger scale, we see a reformed German count commission 13 paintings on the life of Abraham, seven of which were based on plates from the figurae, and I show one here. This painting series demonstrates two modes of reception. The reception of a series of printed compositions by a painter, and the reception of those printed compositions by a patron across religious lines. This patron, Simon VI of Lippa, 
is fascinating because he was both a reformed count who removed images from the churches in his region, <coughs> yet he himself was a painter and an art agent for Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor. His painting cycle focuses on Abra his painting cycles focus on Abraham, fits with the image Simon has fashioned for himself as the patriarch of his region. Abraham models the perfect union of religious and political leadership, the embodiment of courtly virtues, of hospitality and martial prowess, and the rewards of patiently waiting for an heir. Thus, Simon VI could pick up the figurae, excerpt out the sequence that reinforced his religious identity, and leave aside the parts that didn't, for example, the figural representations of God. So why do these migrations happen? Um, let's step back for a minute and think about printed images that are attached in some way to printed texts and the ways in which those two can become separated. Images are itinerant for several reasons. First of all, they're incredibly valuable to publishers. If we look at this illustrated Bible in Germany, um, we see the same wood blocks um, that started with the Cologne Bible being reused by five different publishers over the course of 43 years. Here are just two examples. Um, images could also migrate across print genres. <clears throat> Holbein's biblical illustrations were also used in the Iconics. If we follow a Tobias Stimmer image that we saw earlier, <clears throat> we see the seated Hagar figure migrating in another way, into a drawing that then becomes a painting. So these picture Bibles become rich resources for artists looking for figure studies and poses. Images move because they're valuable capital for printers, and rich artistic capital for artists. Images can also move successfully because they have a semantic openness that text may not. They appeal, they appeal across languages and to publics with varying levels of textual literacy. In considering the case of the figurae plates, the contrast between the illustration's richly detailed multiple vignettes and the bare bones text may in fact invite interpretive work on the part of the reader as she notes the figure's expressive poses and explores the narrative connections that motivate the character's actions. How should you read the glance exchange between Abraham and Hagar? There's imaginative work that goes into deciphering these multiple narratives. Though Simon the Sixth painting cycle is clear evidence of the appeal of the figurized images, not everyone shared the Count's favorable opinion. Crispin de Passa, whose biblical, who, sorry, whose biographical outline may provide a comparable parallel to our somewhat shadowy Simon Novolanus, worked as a reproductive engraver for Christophe Plantin in Antwerp. As a Mennonite, he fled the city in 1589 after its fall to the Spanish and settled in Cologne for the next 12 years. So similar biographies. When forced to leave Cologne in 1612 on religious grounds, Crispin de Passa moved to Utrecht and promptly published his Liber Genesis a set of 60 engraved plates with engraved Latin captions illustrating the first book of the Bible. In the preface, de Passa cl claims it is the first engraved book of Genesis in the northern Netherlands, and that others, such as Novolanus, had produced biblical scenes, but not as extensive a series and sometimes in the wrong order. De Passa's plan was to illustrate the whole Bible himself, and while he is, while he is critical of what he saw as Novolanus's incomplete publication, the figurae may have sowed the seeds for de Passa's subsequent one, showing what could be done if a single artist set out to illustrate Genesis in intaglio form. De Passa's introduction could have served as Novolanus's as well. De Passa writes, it is the nature of people 
to derive more enjoyment from looking at illustrations of historical studies than from reading them. And often they imprint such things deeper in their memories by seeing them with their eyes than by hearing them. He also claims that when his readers see God's miracles for themselves, they will be forced to direct their souls to higher spheres. This discussion by a Mennonite of enjoyment and visual pleasure in the service of learning and spiritual devotion employs exactly the same rhetoric as we encountered in the beginning with Gabriele Pagliotti. Chronologically, Novolanus' publication sits between Pagliotti's treatise and De Passe's illustrated Genesis. If the rhetoric surrounding sacred imagery at the turn of the 17th century was so similar across religious confessions, then perhaps we should not be surprised to find that images like Novolanus's operated transconfessionally as well. So, to quickly conclude, Novolanus's images move in two ways, as individual motifs and compositions picked up by other artists, and then as a conceptual group to the northern ne Netherlands. The circulation that I've traced is that of an artist or artistic influence from the southern Netherlands to Cologne, and then that of another artist who continues the journey by going to the northern Netherlands. This itinerary nuances the traditionally articulated history of art that traces a progression of Netherlandish art centers from Bruges to Antwerp to Amsterdam. Here we see the story of Antwerp printing skipping over to Germany before returning to the Dutch Republic. Along the way, these artists and their images slip across Catholic and Protestant lines. While for the humans creating them, historical circumstances may determine their peregrinations. In the case of the images, it's the compelling ones with proven capacity to instruct and delight a variety of possible viewers, which are more likely to be the ones that move. Thank you. The St. Gall Plan, which is now Codex San Valencius 1092 in the Abbey Library of St. Gall in Switzerland, is a large-scale schematic image done in the 9th century of an idealized Benedictine monastery. The manuscript is unusually large in format, consisting of five pieces of stout parchment sewn together into a single sheet and measuring approximately 3.7 by 2.5 feet. It is covered edge to edge by delineations in three shades of red ink of the main monastic buildings, their outbuildings, and other structures, such as a cemetery and orchard. It also contains 333 rhyming captions in black ink explaining these structures. The more continuous black writing that you see in the lower right-hand corner of this slide is the end of a Latin life of St. Martin added to the manuscript in the 12th century which covers almost the entire verso of the sheet and finishes on its recto over top of some of the original artist's drawing. Like many medieval manuscripts, the St. Gall plan, because of the scarcity of parchment in the Middle Ages, was recycled. At the center of the drawing is the border between a long, lozenge-shaped abbey church and its adjacent square monastic cloister where monks would have meditated before and after gathering in the church itself at regular intervals throughout the day and night to chant the psalms. <coughs> at some point in time, the manuscript was folded up like a map, although it is now stored flat. 
if this folding were a feature of its original design, and that's not certain, the process of unfolding the plan could have been integral to its meaning and purpose. It would have been a physical demonstration of the orderly opening out, as it were, of the full arrangement of monastic life from its foundational disciplines of personal, mental, and communal liturgical prayer. The most meticulous and well-known study of the plan to date was published in three volumes by Walter Horn and Ernest Bourne with the University of California Press at Berkeley in 1979. Horn and Bourne referred to the monastery illustrated in the plan as paradigmatic, a term that seems to imply that the manuscript itself is an actual exemplar or template for building. Other architectural historians have, in my view, more accurately described the monastery depicted in the plan as utopian. In their study, Horn and Bourne construe and use the St. Gall plan as an architect's blueprint, developing from its designs elaborate two- and three-dimensional models, although the plan never formed in the Middle Ages the basis for any realized construction. Horn and Bourne's approach, somewhat modified, also informs a comprehensive website on the plan based at UCLA that I encourage all of you to visit and explore at stgallplan.org. This site enables one digitally to navigate and magnify details of this unique and fragile medieval manuscript whose hands-on use is now restricted to a small team of professional scholars. The plan itself, it must be said, contains some inducements to Horn and Horn's architectural approach. Its 333 annotations, their Trinitarian number, may or may not be symbolic, sometimes include exact measurements. For example, the road of access to the church, the annotator explains, is a garden-like space open to the sky, literally without roofing, sine domatibus. In the church itself, the annotator continues, quote, the width of each aisle is 20 feet, and the width of the nave is 40 feet. While the plan itself contains no scale of measurement, as would a modern architect's blueprint, these numbers would seem to imply, although this is hardly certain, that the buildings depicted by the artist ought to be understood primarily as real rather than imaginary. Mental images and physical ones designed to stimulate them, however, such as crucifixes and manuscript illuminations, including this one from a 13th century French copy of the 6th century Benedictine rule, played an important role in monastic life. By depicting here in this image Benedict's gift of his rule to a group of female monastics who avidly read copies of it, the artist implies both the authority of Benedict's original conception of monasticism and a spiritual kinship between the 13th century monastic reader and her forebears. An important reference to mental imagery concerning monastic architecture, overlooked to date by scholars who work on the St. Gall plan, occurs in the second book of Gregory the Great's late 6th century dialogues, where he tells in moralizing fashion 
the story of St. Benedict's life. On one occasion, Gregory writes, Benedict sent an abbot, his prior, or deputy, and some other monks to the city of Terracina to build a monastery, promising to give them, in due time, a plan, quote, in what place the oratory should be made, and where the refectory should stand, and all the other necessary rooms. En route, the abbot and the prior both have a dream in which Benedict describes the monastery's layout. On reaching their destination, however, they wait for his arrival with a physical blueprint, only to be upbraided by Benedict for not beginning work, quote, in such a way as they had been taught by his revelation. Like all the stories Gregory tells about Benedict, this one is a moral example. It has two themes, the authority of the saint, as this is conveyed mystically to the abbot and prior. According to Benedict's rule, the abbot, by attending to, quote, the words of the master, serves in the monastery, quote, in the place of Christ. And its second theme is the priority of this mystical authority over any sort of written or drawn plan. Gregory's life of Benedict was a central reading in medieval Benedictine monasteries. So his narrative about the mystical plan for the monastery at Terracina may have influenced the design and use of the St. Paul plan. The point would be obvious to a monastic artist. A physical schematic of an idealized monastery is meaningless if it does not provoke reflection on that which undergirds it. As a complex work of art that coordinates picture and text, the St. Paul plan, however else it might have functioned in the ninth century, is a kind of sacrament, an outward sign, when properly meditated upon, of an inner spiritual reality. An inscription on the manuscript by its donor, Hado, abbot of Reichenau Monastery, which is approximately 70 miles from St. Gaul, makes clear that this is how the plan was intended to be used. The inscription, which appears at the top edge of the plan and is heavily rubbed, but still legible, is addressed to Gosbertus, abbot of St. Gaul, from 816 through 837, and the plan's recipient. I quote, For thee, my sweetest son, Gosbertus, have I drawn out this briefly annotated copy of the layout of monastic buildings, with which you may exercise your ingenuity, Latin selection, and recognize my devotion, whereby I trust you do not find me slow to satisfy your wishes. Do not imagine that I have undertaken this task, supposing you to stand in need of our instruction but rather believe that out of love for God and in the friendly zeal of brotherhood, I have depicted this for you alone to scrutinize. Farewell in Christ, always mindful of us. Amen. Gosbertus apparently commissioned the St. Gaul plan, and Heido, either drawing it himself, scholars think this unlikely, or having it done by another, sends it in a friendly and devout spirit to his brother Abbot, who alone can access its wisdom. Solertion, in other medieval monastic texts, 
denotes a special kind of spiritual skill or adroitness essential to the practice of Lexio Divina, or sacred reading. In the first instance, the practice was applied to scripture and involved a disciplined concentration of attention on the smallest parts of a text. For example, a single word or phrase rather than a complete verse or chapter from the book of Job. This word or phrase would be sounded out and repeated and then taken in and ruminated over, to use a favorite monastic metaphor, masticated until it offered up its full spiritual flavor and nourishment. Bede, in his 8th century ecclesiastical history of the English people, uses the term solertium to describe Lexio Divina as an essential complement to prayer. According to his account, the Irish monk, Aidan of Lindisfarne, displayed, quote, ingenuity, solertium, in the study of scripture, and industry in keeping vigil. Mastering, as we might expect the abbot of a monastery would, the twin disciplines of sacred reading and prayer. Two key elements in the St. Gall plan's aesthetic design, neglected by Horn and Born, are its two-dimensionality, and, to borrow a term from modern abstract expressionist painting, it's all over drawing. These would impress themselves emphatically upon a viewer if the plan were hung on a wall rather than being opened out on a table, although the two uses are not, of course, mutually exclusive. And in fact, one corner of the plan still shows evidence of pen or nail marks. The two-dimensionality of the image demands that the eye work to negotiate the complex spatial relationships between the plan's blocky, curvilinear, and nested shapes. These are especially intricate features of the plan's two dominant elements, the outline of the Abbey Church with its twin towers, whose spiral staircases and pinnacles are represented by nautilus-like curves that culminate in rosettes, and the arched courtyard of the cloister, joined to the Abbey Church at the very center of the drawing and organized around an X-shaped radiant floral motif with the inscription Salina, English Savin, indicating a bushy juniper tree. The curved Romanesque arches of the cloister itself protrude against the laws of perspective into its open space so that the mind's eye, as a medieval contemplative might describe the process, must raise imaginatively the arched corridors of the meditative halls. The minute writing of the rhyming captions on the plan would, of course, require closer scrutiny by Gosbertus, probably with the plan laid flat on a table. Not all of the captions run parallel to the horizontal axis of the drawing. These, however, once remembered, rhyme is an aid to memory, could be coordinated easily enough in the imagination with the shapes on which Gaspertus was focused during his meditation. The function of these captions within the design of the drawing itself is a complicated matter outside the scope of this paper. I would speculate, however, that it may be deliberate that Cato's dedicatory inscription to Gaspertus appears along the top edge of the section of the plan that depicts the monastery's 
cemetery, and orchard. Death and the possibility of resurrection being central eschatological themes of monastic writing. Indeed, an annotation at the center of the orchard, arranged around a bold red cross, observes that, quote, among the trees, always the most sacred of the soil is the cross, on which the fruits of eternal health are fragrant. And in a similar transcendent mood, a common motif in Benedictine writing describes every earthly monastery as a typological symbol of the heavenly Jerusalem, to which all monks, by way of sacred reading and prayer, are making their pilgrimage. Let me conclude by proposing two pictorial analogs, one medieval and the other modern, for the meditative design and function of the St. Gall plan. My medieval analog is the kind of all-over painting incorporating subdivided, interlocking, and involute imagery typical of carpet pages, so-called from their Persian carpet-like appearance in early biblical manuscripts such as the Lindisfarne Gospels, seen here, copied circa 700 in Northumberland, England, and now in the British Library. Art historians regard these types of designs, which often precede the Gospel texts themselves, as apotropaic, arranged to entrap and discipline the gaze, to keep it from wandering beyond the borders of the decorated page toward worldly distractions and temptations. To my eye, the layout and character of the St. Gall plan recall, although not of course in elaborate coloring, this type of design, such as the merging of picture and text that you see here at the start of St. Mark's Gospel, again from the Lindisfarne Gospels. <coughs> These insular visual motifs migrated in the 8th and 9th centuries to Europe and were used in some of the illuminated manuscripts produced and still housed in the Abbey Library at St. Gall. Once we acknowledge the St. Gall plan's status as a self-consciously artful drawing rather than simply a, blu a blueprint, their influence on its lineation and patterning can be more creatively explored. My modern analog for the St. Gall plan is Shaker gift drawing depictions of spiritual messages that sometimes take the form of naive but elegant diagrams of Shaker communities, such as this 1849 ink and watercolor drawing of a Shaker village in Canterbury, New Hampshire. My old colleague at UNC Chapel Hill, the folklorist Dan Patterson, who has done extensive work on such drawings, describes them both as records of visionary experiences and spiritual emblems, tokens or signs of hidden truths conveyed from one member of a community to another as a tangible way of establishing a soulful, spiritual, human connection. Abbot Pato of Reichenau, I would recall, writes in the dedication of the St. Gall plan to his fellow abbot, Gasbertus, that he provides the drawing for him alone to scrutinize, quote, out of love for God and in the friendly zeal of brotherhood. Sean Leclerc explains in his foundational account of Benedictine monasticism 
the love of learning and the desire for God, that an ideal of spiritual friendship pervades every aspect of monastic life and informs all of its literary and artistic genres, such as biblical commentary, epistolary writing, and manuscript design, copying, and decoration. This philosophy of monastic friendship is, I think, an important but underappreciated context for the design and use of the St. Gall plan. In her book, The Craft of Thought, Mary Carruthers refers several times to the St. Gall plan as, quote, a machine for meditation. It is only that, however, if we take the word machine in its etymological sense, as derived from Greek makos, contrivance. The plan is indeed meticulously and artfully organized and executed. Its drawings, however, are neither a blueprint for builders nor a merely mechanical means of conveying, by way of a network of visual and verbal codes, a system of Benedictine rules and regulations. Rather, they are a medium for monastic engagement and intimacy, full of aesthetic and sacred truth that requires for its release and dissemination among a community of monks, the abbots, patient attention. Thank you. beginning with the discoveries of Andromachus the Elder. 
During the course of his travels, Andromachus, shown here at the right of the image, watched in wonder as a young man was bitten by a dangerous snake. After killing the offending reptile, the young man walked to a nearby laurel tree, picked a handful of its berries and leaves, and ate them. Curious about the youth's actions, Andromachus approached him. He is depicted again here entering on the right of the image. Sorry, the left. Um, and he learned that laurel was an effective cure for the poisons of most animals. This scene in the Paris Book of Syriac places the laurel tree in Andromachus's line of vision. His gaze is directed both towards the miracle of the use healing and the efficacious properties of the plant itself. Having witnessed firsthand the healing properties of the drug, Andromachus later tested the laurel berries, finding them useful against snake bites and scorpion stings. In order to increase the benefits of his medicine, he added gentian, myrrh, and crepe ginger to the laurel. The compounds mixed and bound together by honey. The recipe is diagrammed on the verso side of the folio. Honey is placed in a central gold roundup, and the names of the four other symbols have been written in the corners in black ink. In contrast, the blue text <coughs> along the sides explicates the uses of key ingredients. For example, at the uppermost side of the rectangle, we learn that these three are beneficial for port and fever. The script spans the distance between myrrh and gentian, and honey forms the apex of the triangle. The angular semi-cuthic script serves a functional purpose, as the artist manipulated horizontal expanders to lengthen or shorten phrases. A smaller cursive script was used to elaborate on the preparation of the medicine. This kind of arrangement continues around the sides of the rectangle, describing four different permutations of three ingredients each. Additional combinations of two ingredients, indicated in red, are formed by adding honey to one of the other symbols. The pairing of honey and laurel berries to cure snake bites can be found at the bottom right-hand corner. As such, the diagram simultaneously articulates the theory as a unified substance and the beneficial permutations of each of its ingredients. In this manner, the recipe may also have been used as a guide for specific ailments. One would not need to concoct the entire theory in order to create a remedy against snake bites. If the narrative depiction of Andromachus argued for the authority of the Theriac's intellectual lineage and medicinal utility, the diagram compounds these claims. Where the figural composition was limited to two vectors via the repeating figure of Andromachus, the symmetric diagram maps out nine possible combinations. And that is not all. As the Theriac recipes progress, Subsequent physicians incorporate additional simple drugs and compound medicines, increasing the complexity of the recipe. The final theory act, that of Andromachus the Younger, contains 70 simple ingredients. As shown in this circular schema, three medicinal cakes form the base of the theory act, here shown in the first three inner rings of the circle. 
the uses and names of symbols follow an alternating black and red cursive script. The Arabic word for these has been written in semi-Kufic and placed nine times within the outermost ring. The script has been elongated so that the words form arcs around the circle's circumference. Underneath, short descriptions indicate what these groupings might have been used for, whether creating a compound of four or of 14 drugs. While today we often think of recipes as lists accompanied by linear instructions, these pre-modern fractal recipes likely included other heuristic functions, including the sustained contemplation and understanding of patterns. The visual recipes in the Book of Theriac are indicative of this kind of manuscript consumption, with readers circling within and between layouts, <coughs> building upon previous knowledge, and creating mental storehouses of information. Although the Paris Book of Theriac is spectacular, its formal compositions are not without precedent. They build upon a centuries-long tradition of Arabic medical tables, diagrams, and charts. This includes the 11th century rectification of health, known in the West as the Tacunan Sanitatis. Adapting the tabular layout from astronomic star charts, this medical almanac condensed thousands of pages of writings into 40 synoptic tables. It distilled the qualities and uses of 210 plant and animal substances, as well as 70 other non-naturals, including music, emotional states, winds and seasons, bathing, clothing, and specific locations and climates. A proponent of the Galenic system of humor, humoral pathology, whereby physical well-being was contingent on equilibrium, the rectification of health aimed to provide readers with the knowledge to maintain bodily balance. This emphasis on balance, proportion, and moderation bears out in the di diagonal placement of text in the center of the verso folios. Positioning the text in this way maximizes space within the cells, but the shifting directions of script also create their own visual order. The resulting diamond pattern appears to float above the vertical and horizontal lines of the grid, suggesting relationships and readings that transgress isolated cells. Even though the text itself is meaningless, read along these long diagonals, the scriptural web emphasizes the table as a cohesive body of knowledge. The overlaid square rhombus pattern also mimics that of the square of opposition. Used in the classical tradition to diagram relationships between Aristotelian positions and logic, squares of opposition can also be found in medical texts such as this early 13th century summary of Galen's writings. It is likely that a physician or a student of medicine produced this work for their own education. While the haphazard arrangement of arboreal charts and hurried script are a long way from the pre precision of the Book of Theriac, this notebook suggests an important lesson about Arabic reading. The square of opposition is aligned with the arboreal chart to its right, not the top and bottom constraints of the folio. Here the author has laid out an elemental square, demonstrating mixtures of humoral qualities. 
along the vertical axis, wetness and cold combine as in water, heat and dryness and fire. Diagonal combinations are also possible. Across from each other, horizontally, are contrary natures, such as hot and cold, which cannot be mixed. The relationship between geometry, logic, and demonstrable proof founded in visual evidence has a long history in the Arabic-speaking world, beginning with the 9th century polymath Al-Kindi. Al-Kindi singled out geometry as the most certain of epistemologies and proceeded to adapt the method to philosophical proof. The arrangement of medical data into recognizable geometric shapes must have resonated with readers accustomed to the use of geometry to demonstrate certainty. Mathematics and logic were foundational subjects, even for physicians. The association of geometry with the certainty of proof may be summarized by Ibn Khaldun's writing. Quote, it should be known that geometry enlightens the intellect and sets one's mind right. All its proofs are very clear and orderly. It is hardly possible for errors to enter into geometrical reasoning because it is so well arranged and orderly. Thus, the mind that constantly applies itself to geometry is not likely to fall into error." End quote. Principles of geometry, symmetry, and proportion thereby championed the intellectual claims of both the rectification of health and the Book of Syria. Strategies for sorting and linking information in these manuscripts were not limited to tables, also present are distinctive circular forms based on the zapija, a Persian astrological term for a four-sided or round schema made to exhibit the horoscope or configurations of the stars at the time of one's birth. An, exa ex an exceptional example, such as this one, was commissioned in the early 15th century Iran for Iskandar Sultan, the grandson of Timur. In the lavish double folio, Personifications of the zodiac and planets record the position of the heavens at the exact time of Iskandar's birth. But concentric circles commonly match the celestial field, field spheres, excuse me, even in less ornate diagrams. <coughs> the adaption of the Zaija for the rectification of health and the Book of Theriac visually aligned non-natural causes and medicinal symbols with cosmological forces, making a direct claim regarding the nature of medical knowledge. The physician's art was to monitor the human microcosm in the same way astronomers accounted for the movements of the heavens. Maintaining one's health was not a linear process with a beginning and an end, but a matter of dynamic movement and constant adjustment. Furthermore, there is not only a formal comparison to be made between the geometrical layouts in these works, attention to their facture demonstrates that they were produced using the same tools and procedures. While the use of a ruling board to impress lines was common practice among medieval Arabic bookmakers, tabulated manuscripts commonly bear other distinct marks, small holes left by a sharp burin or compass point. These marks measured the dimensions of rows and columns 
and facilitated the consistent reproduction of sizes and proportions throughout the manuscript's folios. Close physical examination of the Book of Theriac revealed these very same pinprickings along the horizontal and vertical axes of its diagrams. In other words, the artist responsible for the Book of Theriac adapted the tools of tabulated manuscripts as the foundation for their own visual program. But where earlier tabulated manuscripts highlighted the lines of the grid through the use of gold or red ink, in the Paris Book of Theriac, these guidelines were either removed or more likely never drawn at all. Instead, the invisible grid served as a platform upon which the artist could construct elaborate recipes. Despite the plethora of sources on the arts of calligraphy, historians have unearthed only one text, excuse me, one text that addresses the relationship between mise-en-page and geometry. Written by the Andalusian scholar Alcala Lucy during the second half of the 13th century, it is incomplete, but nevertheless provides some insight as it describes the ways in which page layout was based on the interior proportions of the folio. Bookmakers demarcated the text block by folding, tracing circles and arcs with a compass, calculating distances, and connecting points with a straight edge. Although systematic and broad-ranging studies of Arabic manuscripts in this regard are yet to be undertaken, evidence suggests that copies extrapolated page layout by plotting a precise standard unit. In the same way that the area of a square point drawn with the reed pen dictated the proportions of calligraphic letters. But as Valerie Pelosan noted, artists might conceal this analytic foundation by removing the composition's support beams. The complex layouts constituted geometric puzzles for the viewer, with the key hidden in plain sight. To quickly conclude then, Although scholars have located the beginnings of Arab painting in the Book of Theriac's illustrations, the work's figural and diagrammatic elements worked in tandem as part of a cohesive visual program. I therefore <coughs> move to resituate the manuscript within broader practices of Arabic arts of the book. The presence of geometric diagrams in both illustrated and unillustrated copies of the Book of Theriac suggests that it was these forms which were considered integral components of the genre. A medical text in name, the Book of Theriac participated in the intellectual culture of logical demonstration, geometry, and cosmography. As such, the artist responsible for the Book of Theriac marshaled diagrammatic designs precisely in order to prove the authority and efficacy of their recipe. Thank you. Speakers, come and, and sit here. And sit up here. Why don't you sit up here as well, oh. Claire? And okay. We can all kind of have a conversation together. How's that? Just invite questions and comments from the audience. So, have a rich discussion of diagramming, illustration. So, 
Do you want to, why don't you take, since you know the, the, the characters back there. Yes. 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 This is a question for Holly, uh, but it's a question that may be of interest to all of you, and I'd certainly be interested in hearing your thoughts about it. I, I noticed that in your discussion, you, you never use the word appropriation. That's a word that I've often found uh, difficult, stymieing in my own thinking sometimes, and I'd be interested to know whether you feel that that word in, des in describing the way that images get reused is not helpful, and so, uh, and so why not? Maybe I'm not as careful in choosing my words as you are, Simon. I don't, I don't know if I've consciously avoided appropriation. I just, um, I guess whenever an artist, especially ones I'm looking at, they're cha it's going from one medium to another. I don't, I mean, I feel like there's so much that goes into that appropriation. I guess maybe sounds to my ear it sounds like a slightly negative or a little. Aggressive. Yeah, as opposed to. Circulation. Yeah, or just thinking like, how how were you even trained in that period? You were trained by copying, and you and then um, kind of from our discussion earlier this morning, like, can you copy the monster? Then can you make your own? So, um, I don't know. I guess maybe I maybe I've unconsciously avoided that word, but I um, I'm curious to hear your objections to appropriation. Well, it seems to me that it's a word that, that often comes up, in, especially in a colonial context, mm. when there's a movement of an image from some mm. kind of some, some cultural group or some cultural yeah. center, uh, putative center to a periphery. People yeah. often talk about the appropriation of an image. And my right. sense is that the implication there is that an image, which your talk beautifully demonstrated, can be left open, deliberately left open yeah. for interpretation in different ways, yeah. um, somehow belongs to one group yeah. and then is, is taken, maybe theft yeah. is a little bit too strong a word, but it's yeah. appropriated and used by another group for its yeah. own purposes in ways that are, that the word appropriation is, is meant to imply are not faithful to the original somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of my own topic, I would go so far as to say that horn and born, you know, who you know, I think are geniuses. I mean, their uh, their volumes on the St. Gall plan uh, are are just incredible. I mean, and, and they're very imaginative. But what they've done is to appropriate this monastic document um, to a particular scholarly sub subdiscipline, architectural history. And in doing so, you know, their interpretation, as magnificent as it is, you know, eclipses these other possibilities that I see as, you know, historically relevant. So that when, when you're finished reading, reading their volumes, you have a very profound understanding of, of monastic space, but very little understanding of the relationship between monastic space and monastic experience. You know, we're, I mean, we're, you know, in this room right now, and the way in which the room is configured is, is affecting our experiences, not just of the room, but in general. And, and that, that sort of eludes, you know, horn, horn and born, not, not entirely, but, um, you know, because they talk about that dedicatory inscription themselves, but not, not in the sense in which I talked about it. But they, they don't, you know, they appropriate the St. Gall plan um, for a particular 
sub-discipline. And they don't really talk about it as an art object, which, you know, I think it itself evidently is. And just to jump in with my examples, um, you know, the, the history of science literature on tables gets talked a lot about um, uh, in terms of appropriation. Mm -hmm. So that this form is appropriated from astrology for the first time for medicine, and it's this amazing revolution. I actually very much push against that um, in the sense of this is a community that shares this intellectual uh, corpus of disciplines, of manuscripts. And I think that's why the form works, right? Because they don't have to, in a sense, relearn this. It has different consequences to map a human body versus mapping the planet, but the resonances are productive. Yeah, I have a question for um, Ms. McCurdy. I really enjoyed your talk on a topic I know nothing about. <laughs> uh, in light of the short paper delivered by Yale Rice this morning about the Islamic world pictorially being inheritors of the Judeo-Christian world, I was interested in this theriatic manuscript, which you say kind of scientific illustration creates Islamic painting, that you show an illustration with the laurel tree, but <coughs> figures are haloed, and then you show this recipe that is a diagram with honeypot in the middle, and I think of early Christian, you know, liturgy and the way that the Eucharist is on a pattern and do you have any connections that you can bring in from, say, the early Christian iconographic world and how it relates to this manuscript? Um, I'm hesitant to speak too much iconographically, but I will say that um, for many years, um, the Christian community, particularly in Baghdad, was predominantly Christian. Um, and there's some, um, there's some thought that this manuscript may have been produced for a Shi'i family. Um, so there are definitely different sort of religious undertones happening in the work. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think though that um, you know we tend to want to ascribe identity in religious terms in a lot of these cases. Yeah, no, I'm not um, saying like ascribing yeah. identity, but if there are any, it's a complex feed because you see elements and you wonder what the back and forth you see of things mm -hmm. that match with each other. Right. Well, there very much is back and forth between classical tradition via Syriac translation, translations of Greek. Um, but I guess the question I'll have to think a little bit more about. Can I ask, a, ask you a question following yeah. up on Claudia's question? Because when you showed that 14th century Egyptian codex mm -hmm. in the Bodleian, yeah. um, which coordinates lapidary information with astronomical information, is that right? There were, mm -hmm. um, were those depictions of stones, the, the circular shapes around the, um, the central? The, the astrological calendar? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the title was something 
you know, oh. the title referred to lapidaries as well as to astrology. So I, I oh, was right. just so I was struck by those right. by those shapes that were organized around there. Right. Well, of course, um, in sympathetic astrology, right, the the heavens yeah. draw the same elements from the earth, and right. this all gets mapped out. Right. So, yeah. 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 So, so often, you know, in medicine, we try to pit that kind of magical astrology side versus yeah. the Greek tradition. Yeah. But this is a great example where you see them all melding yeah. together. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for terrific uh, presentation. So this is a question for Holly. Um, so the picture Bible that you began with, uh, you drew this wonderful uh, image of the many ways in which it operated uh, and, and taught, etc. If you were teaching this to undergraduates, and I don't know if this is a valid question, but do you, if, if you had to find an equivalent in contemporary visual culture um, that would have similar ambitions, <laughs> what, what sort of thing would you reach for? <laughs> he must be thinking of one. That's <laughs> a, a contemporary visual culture? Huh. I mean, there are comic book Bibles. Have you ever seen those? Mm -hmm. um, they I mean, don't have the same sort of didactic. <laughs> you can't learn Latin from them. You can't. Uh, they don't have the, the depth of. Do, do they? But are, are these are not really designed to teach Latin, are they? Well, I think that I think they do lots of things. I think it's mm. for visual pleasure. I do think the Latin's pretty basic, so I think it's. Um, what do we have that's, that's, I don't, could it be like one of those abridged illustrated treasure island kind of things? I don't know, like those like those ones where your kids can read it in the afternoon and they say like, I've read Treasure Island, and mm. no, you haven't really, yeah. but maybe it's... Classic comics. But aren't these also sumptuary objects? I mean, they're... they're, they're yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they're good. They're, they're not uh, comic books, and, and they're not which are discardable, and uh, they're not low on the hierarchy of cultural Yeah, goods. and I think... I think this genre of the picture Bible has um, hierarchy of cultural goods. Okay, it's been hard to. I mean, so part of it is falls between these disciplines, but also, you know, we have these discussions of who is this meant for? Oh, if it's pictures and simple Latin, it's meant for kids. Well, at that that size and sort of the high quality illustrations, I don't really think so. I think it's I think it's people that in, I think it's people that are collecting print series. I think. You've, it hits different audiences, but that's a good question. Do you have a good? Do you have a cultural product for me, Kyle? It's, it's such an impressive object in the world uh, that you, you wonder whether there is anything that that could come up to that kind of level within our contemporary civilization. They struck me as being like um, exhibition catalogs, almost, you know, or you know that you know the way you would see pictures arranged sometimes in, in some kind of cohesive narrative sequence in a, in a gallery. You know, kind of portable. Yeah, or it's sort of like a coffee table yeah. version yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, it's right. like pleasurable to look at. It's not deeply yeah, intellectual, better, but you can enjoy yeah. looking at it right. and still be sophisticated yeah. and have it on your coffee table. Yeah. Maybe. Mm. You're pushing me to speculate. Mm. In a way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get a quote of Holly's coffee table Bible or something. How were they sold? Um, uh, what was the cost of them relative to other Yeah, so I've, I've looked into that. I've been trying to look for records of the Frankfurt Book Fair, and all mm -hmm. I can do so far is sort of find comparable books that Plantin would have sold. So there's good documentation on, on Plantin um, publishing, but not on this particular book, um, because it's really not been well-researched. So 
and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're not they're not cheap. They're not these throwaway things. They're they're they are and there's not that many. I've only found three versions out there in the world, so I don't know. Okay. I really enjoyed these talks, and I'm going to ask you to speculate more. Actually, thinking about it's nice to your question. Um, I was struck rhetorically. Each of your three talks worked really well for me because you play in this image is integrated or image is interruption, right? That we have this idea that there's a text and there's an image, and in some cases, as in these medical manuscripts, it's somehow integrated. But in the case of these control Bibles, there's kind of an interruption, it's a separate productive process, and this, this monastery diagram is, is something that's in between. And I think rhetorically that works for me, not knowing your areas as well, because my model of this is a web page where you actually tag an image, and you're like, oh, the image is an interruption, now it's got the text, now it's got the image, and they're separate files. And I guess the thing I'm, I'm curious about, that I'd love to hear you speculate on, is of course imagining any of these three things as though it were a web page is modernizing and will blind us to its own historical context. So I'm curious, like, what is your imaginative metaphor when you interact with this kind of object that places you as a consumer of this kind of text to get you away from this, I think, false way of thinking about it. It's not that it's either integrated or interrupting. It's, it's something else in all three cases. Um, and I'd love to hear from any of the three of you, or all three, if you have something. So the same golf plan is, it's a web, it is a web page now. It's a whole, it's a whole web experience. <clears throat> you know, heavily financed. I mean, it's very impressive. The problem with it is that, you know, like Born and Born, it eclipses an awareness of the kind of all over character of it. You know, you can zoom in, find it. some of those later images in my in my PowerPoint were, you know, screen grabs from the um, from the website. Uh, I mean the, the digital photography is exquisite. You can navigate the whole thing, but you know, when you do the, the plan is compartmentalized for you, you know, it's, it's it's the sum of its parts rather than being some kind of whole. And um, so I don't... Um, Could you imagine being in front of the object? Like, you gave it size, instructing, so, like maybe when you're looking at the website, you're imagining the object. So needless to say, I mean, you know, um, they didn't allow me to fold the thing up. <laughs> so what I did was to, when you saw that folded example of it, you know, I had an 11 by 17 color image runoff, and I cut it out and folded it and, and photographed it against the white background. So that, so that's a mock-up. Then when you saw the monk kneeling in front of it, um, you know, I took that same Xerox and I put it on my closet door and photographed it at an angle and cut and pasted it with some something I found on you know, some image bank of a monk kneeling. I mean, you can't, you know, you, you have to imagine, um, you know, these circumstances as a way, of, as it were, you know, entering through the back door into the experience of what it might have been like to meditate on this um, document because it's, you know, it's moved into the category of kind of uh, icon. You know, it's become. You know, it's moved from blueprint to icon, and, and no one can, can get access to it anymore, except the team of scholars who worked on the website. Um, do, do you guys want to? I, I do have okay. a response, actually. Um, my answer to that is embarrassingly antiquated. 
um, I have spent way too many hours in front of these manuscripts actually drawing them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you sit with them and you realize I can't actually understand this unless I plot it out physically myself. Um, and I think that's intentional. Um, you know, the, the Book of Theriac actually pasted in one of the 19th century collectors who had done this himself, right? And he has no idea actually how to do acoustic calligraphy. It's all like drawn and traced and uh, with this like impulse to create. Can I, can I follow up on that? Because I, to me, there's a question about the legibility of these illustrations, whether they're actually designed to be legis- legible or designed to be difficult and have a kind of performative quality of... Um, you almost need to bring some kind of secret knowledge yourself to your to this diagram or some kind of inspiration. And I think there's a little bit of that in, in, this, in this thing called as well, but in particular, I mean, there's a kind of uh, proliferation, uh, kind of certainly in the geometrical figures, but also in the in the calligraphic, the merging of the calligraphic with with the, the um, geometrical, which it is to me, it's very extravagant and excessive, and uh, again, I think. And my, my comparison is that there's a, a group of people now who are studying alchemical texts. Mm-hmm. And some of the scholars are saying, well, these recipes are actually not designed to be ever made. Mm-hmm. They're not practical recipes. What they are is demonstrations of the art and virtuosity of the recipe maker. Mm-hmm. I, I, I yeah. certainly get the sense of that yeah. in your illustration, and in your we're, we have a, only a, a couple minutes left. Um, I actually wanted to just add one thing that I think relates to that. Um, I was noticing each of you talk about uh, sort of the detail. You know, you, you zoom in on, on details of the manuscripts in the meditation and, and, and in, the, in the recipes and, and indeed in the, the gaze or the whether there's a figural god or not. Um, but then you also have this sort of all-over quality. You know, you're looking at it as a sort of mystifying totality. Is there a middle? Is there a way to get from the detail to the totality, or do you have to always shift between them with a sort of rupture? So that's the problem of, I I mean, I like Jackson Pollock paintings, you know, but I would be hard put to explain to anyone uh, what it is about looking at a Jackson Pollock that, you know, as I was just the other day, you know, that, um, that impresses me and keeps me standing there for, 20 minutes when somebody else walks away after a couple. I mean that, you know, I, I, you know, I think the same thing is, you know, when, when you had your images up, I, I felt that way. And some of these engravings that you showed, I mean, you could spend an entire day on one of them, you know? I mean, when you were moving between background and foreground. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I'm like, my feeling is you're just like packing as much as you can in. Like they're trying to be encyclopedic about the whole book of Genesis, mm-hmm. and you're, you've got to pack five or six episodes in, and this is meant to be lingered over and enjoyed. So mm-hmm. that's kind of that's and there's a I kind of this. compression technology mm-hmm. going on, yeah. and all all mm-hmm. of the, the three of you is mm-hmm. kind of you know, medieval, ancient, early modern. Mm. Compression software. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was struck, you know, I mean, Holly, this came up possibly in years, but sort of the, sort of the pluralistic opportunities there, whether or not that was what they had in mind, whether it was economic or, but, you know, that there are 
details for everyone and, and multiple ways of taking a, a recipe. Uh, and um, it says we're out of time. I don't know if people, I don't hear movement in the other places, but um, Sylvia, I know you've been yeah, waiting yeah, let's forever. Take one more. Uh, yes. I was, uh, this is about the, the Arabic manuscript. Um, I was struck by the color. And, and at first it, it comes as very rich and a lot, but it really gets down to black, red, and blue. Mm -hmm. And has any, have studies been made about what, what was used for the color, and, and why not green, and why not some mm -hmm. other? Mm -hmm. it, it's, it really just came down <coughs> to those three colors, and two shades of blue, I think. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, you know, I haven't read the pigment analysis, and I don't actually know if there's been one done for the theoria. Um, but red and black are very common. Mm -hmm. um, and is there a meaning to the color? Right, was there? Oh, okay. Um, for a future conference? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was great in the illustrations, but you're, illustrations. Because you're saying There's yeah. very much a sense of tiling and carpeting in mm -hmm. these yeah, illustrations. <laughs> that this is participating not just in, I mean, there's a kind of geometrical <coughs> aestheticism going on that's very highly developed. Well, and in fact, um, the term for the astronomical search, the Z, uh, they're called Zeech. Um, this is also so the term used to reference a warp. And I know green was fairly unstable in certain contexts. So uh, exactly. Avoid it. Right. Yeah. There's lots of intermediality to go around here. <laughs> so are we done? We can continue, <laughs> we can, we can continue the conversation. Thank you.